Hi, this is Pastor Joel Webin with Right Response Ministries, and you're listening to another episode of Theology Applied. Now, what we're doing this week is we're taking one of our all-time favorite episodes of Theology Applied, a blast from the past, and re-airing it for all of those who missed it, and for some of you who maybe watched it before, but it's been a while, and you wouldn't mind a brief refresher. This episode is with special guest Non-Tenant and Michael Foster from the podcast, It's Good to Be a Man. They've actually recently just come out with a book, which I believe is also titled, It's Good to Be a Man. So Michael Foster and Non-Tenant from their podcast, their ministry, It's Good to Be a Man. And the title of this episode is Biblical Patriarchy, How Complementarianism Falls Short of Scripture. Biblical Patriarchy. How, how complementarianism falls short of scripture. You're in for a treat. Enjoy. Real quick, before we get started, if you would prayerfully consider supporting Right Response Ministries, we would be incredibly grateful. You can do so by giving a gift of any amount at rightresponseministries.com slash donate. If you're not able to support this ministry financially at this time, you can still support us in a great regard by simply subscribing to our YouTube channel, clicking the bell, and of course, sharing our content with all your friends and family. We need your help, and we pray that you would consider supporting us in this endeavor. Lastly, as you know, the Christmas season is upon us, and if you're looking for someone to professionally decorate your home, the outside of your home with Christmas lights, David Hooten is your guy. He has his own Christmas light business called Capital Lights, Capital Lights. David Hooten is actually a faithful member in our church, Covenant Bible Church, and a personal friend. I've known him for several years. He does incredible work. He has um, incredibly competitive prices, and most importantly, he is a Christian man who loves the Lord. Now, if you live in New Zealand, you're probably not going to use David Hooten to come and do your Christmas lights. But if you live in the greater Austin, Texas area, and you're looking for somebody to professionally install your Christmas lights with one of the lowest, most competitive prices here in town to do a professional job, again, David Hooten is your guy. It's Capital Lights. That's uh, his website is CapitalLightsATX.com. Capital Lights ATX for Austin, Texas.com. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. This is Pastor Joel Webin with Right Response Ministries. We're coming at you with another episode of Theology Applied. Today, I'm privileged and honored to have as our guests. We've got a non-tenant and we have Michael Foster. They are co-hosts of uh, a podcast called It's Good to Be a Man. I have been a listener to that podcast for a while now. Uh, now I've been blessed by their ministry and uh, the ways that they directly address men uh, in the church and really even just in culture in general um, from the Word of God today. So I'm blessed to have you guys. Could you take a moment and just introduce yourselves to our listeners? I will go first because I was mentioned first. I am non-tenant. I live in New Zealand. I am a reformed Christian. And I do web design and copywriting for a living. So that's where my expertise lies. That's uh, how I primarily contribute to our ministry is through writing and designing stuff, the website and so on. It's funny to hear you describe us as a podcast because it's always interesting hearing how people think of us. Right. Like I don't think of us as a podcast. I think of a, the podcast is one thing that we do. And it's actually kind of a minor thing in some ways. <laughs> what we're working on really hard at the moment is actually a book. So that's, that's oh, where cool. I see all of our effort at the moment. Go, Michael. Sure. Uh, I'm Michael Foster. I am a, a pastor 
I live here in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm, I'm prepping to move where my church is, which is in Batavia, Ohio, which is about 30 minutes from where I'm currently at, just outside of Cincinnati. Cool. Great. And I tweet and talk and speak and write with non. So that's and we both have lovely wives and children, lest anyone forget. That's right. Praise God for that. Your ministry in general. So apparently uh, you guys do more than just a podcast, which I assumed you did because I hear you talk about it on the podcast. But that's been my main exposure to your ministry and, uh, and to your teaching, which I've appreciated. So could you tell us just about the podcast or your ministry in general or a little bit about the book? And really, what's the big idea? What's the big mission, uh, the big purpose behind your ministry to men? Um, sure. Uh, so I s- started with this idea that we needed a podcast that was reaching groups of men that seemed like the church, uh, they were falling through the cracks of the church or they were being neglected or their issues weren't being uh, spoken to. And that came through just a lot of study on my own, uh, just trying to be helpful as as a pastor in a church. And a lot of the questions that were coming my way weren't questions that I even really dealt with. Uh, I'm, I'm 40 years old. You know, so I, I grew up right before the internet took over. Right. So I I experienced some of it in high school, but not uh, in any way that most millennials did. I'm a really old millennial or really young Gen X, whatever you want to call it. So as those questions were coming up, uh, I, I went to YouTube and looked where these young men were going besides the church because they weren't finding answers in the church. And to be frank, I wasn't able to give them a lot of good answers at times. So I discovered Jordan Peterson and the red pill um, movement, which is red pill is just a metaphor that comes from the movie, the matrix. It's having your eyes open. So it's having your eyes open to the real nature of sexuality. And that's a movement uh, largely uh, dominated by pagan uh, men who apply uh, evolutionary psychology to intersexual relationships. But with a lot of times what they're identifying is really this God's design for the world, right? The, the way creation works. And so there's some truth there. Plus they don't deny the goodness of the human body. Uh, they actually probably go the opposite direction uh, where in a lot of churches, it's, it, it tends towards a Gnostic take on things. So, as I started to play around with the idea, uh, seriously, like within several weeks, I realized Non, who we had been, you know, online friends and read and interacted here and there, I, I somehow figured out that Non, I don't even remember how, was reading and thinking through a lot of the same things, which if you were to talk about that, about those books and topics and blog posts and polite you know, mixed company, people would really raise their eyebrows. So I was, didn't really know who to work through these issues with. And so I was blessed to find Non. And we started on a project to create a practical theology for men. And it uh, turned into a a podcast and a a website. And uh, that's kind of my side to it. I don't know. What what do you want to add, Non? Well, I came at it. My story is, my perspective is quite different to Michael's. I came at it from a study perspective. I stumbled onto Red Pill in the process of studying the relationship between kingdom theology and, um, well, a number of things were going on in my head that made me think, you know, how does, how do gender roles fit into everything that I'm currently doing in theology, which was mostly unrelated to gender roles and stumbled onto Del Rock and uh, Rational Male 
and spent a lot of time reading those and then went through a cage stage from which I would say Michael rescued me. But it's nice that he sees things in such a rosy light. And we started, he started, it's good to be a man. And I kind of joined him is how I see it. But mm. what particularly attracted me to it was the desire to have a positive doctrine of manhood. What is it that men are supposed to do? Because so much of the red pill, like one of the things that really bothered me, even in my cage stage, I was like, I know that these things are wrong and I want everyone to know about them and ranting and raving about everything that's wrong with the world and not having any actual answers or solutions except to just kind of yell at men that they need to do better. You know, that's not helpful. Right. So the idea of having a practical doctrine of masculinity that we could actually flesh out, what does it mean to be a man? And what are the key principles that scripture talks about and the virtues and the duties and all that kind of thing. That was very helpful to me. And I believe it's been very helpful to lots of other men as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm one of them. Cool. Um, well, uh, one word that people are bothered by, of course, uh, especially in our culture today and sadly in the church as well, is the word patriarchy. And so you guys use that word a lot. And so I wanted to uh, give you an opportunity to define biblical patriarchy and perhaps flesh out maybe uh, some of the distinctions between patriarchy and uh, what often we would refer to as complementarianism that we find in the average evangelical church today. What, what would you see, see as being the primary differences between what the Bible describes and what you might find in your average Calvinistic, complementarian, evangelical church today? Do we use the word patriarchy a lot, Michael? I don't think we use the patri word patriarchy that much. I, I think know. we're associated with people that use it a lot. Well, I think I, I, I've, I've done some, uh, some speeches or lectures, and I use the word a bunch. <laughs> that might be. Right. Yeah. I mean, what it means is uh, it means father rule, right? Right. And so what we mean by it is that God – so uh, when we use the word cosmos, we're talking about the structure of existence, Right. So it's not just the Carl Sagan cosmos where it's like, you know, the Oort cloud and rings around Saturn, but it's the, the whole way everything is made. And God has built the cosmos in such a way that men are, um, are, are rulers. So, and so that's called patriarchy. So men are the rulers in the home and they're the rulers in the church, but they're also the rulers in society because society is a collection of households, right? So it would mm -hmm. make right. no sense to have men be the heads of, the, of their household and not be the heads of society. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with patriarchy is that there are virtuous uh, manifestations of it and wicked manifestations of it. And the easiest example of that would be the devil is, uh, is called a father. Right. Jesus says you're you're uh, right. your sons of the devil. Right. So that's clearly patriarchy can be evil, um, just like heterosexuality is natural, um, but it can also have evil manifestations. So it is with patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and so a lot of people get uh, triggered by it because they first want to say sexuality or, or, or the sexual nature that God's given us. Masculinity is evil. Those people are wrong. Those people are being evil. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but then some people that are trying to compensate for that make a mistake where they act like uh, all forms of patriarchy are somehow good or unquestioned, you know, which is just silly. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly they're not. So uh, that that's what patriarchy is. I think Nan can explain to you the difference between patriarchy and complementarian, at least broadly speaking. Yeah. Well, the reason that I asked about how often we use the word patriarchy is because we don't actually try to shy away from it, but we do recognize that it triggers a lot of people. And to receive a wide audience, we 
tend to speak rather of gendered piety. We, we see patriarchy as very much the idea that uh, men represent God's rule, which is not really all there is to being a man or to being a woman for that matter. So we're quite concerned not just to affirm that men represent God's rule, which is true, but also to say, what are the other aspects of being a man? What are the duties of being a man? What, what do men have to do? What do women have to do? So we call that gendered piety. But in terms of the distinction between that and what complementarianism teaches, it fundamentally comes down to whether or not there is actually a, uh, a purpose to the design for the sexes. So complementarians are eager to affirm things like men need to be pastors. You can't have female pastors. Um, depending on how soft they are, they get pretty close to that line. They'll have women acting in pastoral ways without technically having the name. But they want to say that men should be heads of the church and heads of the family, but they don't want to say that men should be heads of the society because that's obviously terrible and that would exclude women from being presidents. They also don't want to say things like women shouldn't vote and they don't want to say things like women shouldn't be police officers or work in um, the military. And the reason for that is that they don't actually have an ordering principle around which gender duties are designed. They don't have some kind of fundamental baseline that says, the reason that men exist is for this. And the reason that women exist is for this. They just have isolated verses that they've taken from scripture and they can say, they can see clearly the scripture says this. So you have to believe this, but it's almost like it's just an arbitrary command that God gave. Um, there's no particular reason he said that women can't be pastors. It's just that he said that um, right. it's not, it's not rooted in their nature, you know? So it's a question right. of what is the nature of man and the nature of woman and complementarianism. Mm -hmm. I think because it has, lost um it it started as a response to feminism and it was always highly conditioned by feminism it's kind of a shame theology it's a it's a theology that is ashamed of scripture and tries to yeah. re retrieve as much of scripture as is um impossible to deny exegetically while eliminating all of the other things that could be cool shamed by the culture such as the mm -hmm. idea that women actually have different natures to men Right. And that's the no, history that's of complementarianism, which is helpful to understand is that that uh, Wayne Grudem and the guys that are working on it during the um, Evangelical Theological Society and the creation of the Danvers Statement was working towards a coalition, working towards a compromise consensus, consensus statement. And so the idea was to try to pull people together and then work towards greater reform on the topic. And that's why some complementarians, uh, we, we would not really differ from them. Um, in our in our understanding of, of sexuality, where other complementarians like are really uh, they treat sexuality based on roles as opposed to nature, right? right? And that's why I will say that complementarianism, modern, the the broadly accepted stuff that you see at at this moment on like a gospel coalition website or or preached by like Matt Chandler or, or kind of mm -hmm. these uh, well-known evangelicals, it, it presupposes a sort of androgyny where yeah. more or less men and women right. are, so, are human, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're just humans and, and the roles are interchangeable, right? And so androgyny has kind of two understandings. One is th there's a mixing of the sexes. Right. So you can think of like David Bowie back in the 80s. He was mm -hmm. kind of pushing that idea. Where is it a guy? Is it a girl? You know, Michael um, Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Jackson. A lot of a lot of those pop stars, especially in the um, 70s and 80s, were doing that. But the other aspect of it is just simply to say that maleness and femaleness is somehow interchangeable 
between the sexes, which is mm-hmm. really a logical insanity. So, and that's, and that's what we're trying to push back is say like, look, if there's a female nature and there's a male nature, that nature extends to all of life and you got to work it out. And that's why complementarianism was doomed. It was doomed the moment they didn't root it in nature, not because those guys all were bad people or they didn't have um, good intentions. They weren't working towards things like uh, many of them were. When I listen to a lot of the things that John Piper says, I think he's one of the better complementarians. Now, as he gets old, he should probably maybe stop talking. But um, right. but uh, right. so that's where at we least, fall. At least about politics. Uh, John Piper, yeah, he, God bless him forever. But with politics, he, he needs to just go ahead and sit a play out or two. So. He's shown a good way to be a pastor, uh, but maybe stay in your lane. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's super helpful, guys. I um, everything you're saying is is encouraging because I've been listening to your podcast and reading other guys, and I preached through Genesis um, about about a year and a half ago uh, at my church in San Diego. I'm now in. Texas. Uh, but when I was pastoring there in San Diego, we preached through Genesis. Um, and I remember when I was in chapter one and chapter two, my big, you know, preacher line was uh, that it's not male and female roles. He assigned them, but male and female natures, he designed them. Uh, it rhymes. It had to be true. And so, um, but anyways, but just helping people see that, you know, it's, it's not just that, uh, you know, God calls birds to fly and calls fish to swim. Well, he also gives fish gills and fins and he gives birds wings and a hollow bone structure. It's not just that, hey, they're exactly the same and they just have two different roles. It's no, they're, they're ontologically two distinct creatures designed for their roles. And they're, and they're differently designed for those different roles. And I think male and female, you guys are absolutely right. It's really become like just this uh, duty and role on the surface that's interchangeable. Um, and uh, and it's, it's like... Um, I don't know, it's almost like a ice cream, you know, like you have a, like a chocolate shell around the vanilla ice cream and, and one is, you know, it's a dark chocolate and another one's like, maybe it's a strawberry, you know, but, but on the center, it's both just that creamy vanilla goodness, you know, and, uh, and we think of men and women in those terms, like it's, it's just on the surface and it doesn't go all the way down. It relates back to what Michael mentioned about the Gnosticism that we have in evangelicalism, right. where the, the right. body is downplayed. And there's a kind of general consensus that everyone has that really we're all kind of androgynous spirits and the bodies are just incidental. God happens to give us a male or a female body, but deep down inside the soul, the spirit is androgynous. And when we die, we we won't really be male or female. That's that's not necessarily how they think about it, but that's kind of how it works out if if you actually take it to its logical extreme. Yeah, I used to I used to think that. I, I mean, you're describing the view that I I mean, I can't remember how long ago it was, but there was a time where I thought, and part of the reason was because, you know, it's good to be a man. Well, it's also good to be a woman if you're a woman, a biological woman. And uh, and part of me just didn't think it was good to be a woman. And so I, I literally thought, like, you know, if you're a Christian faithfully serving Jesus, then you'll be rewarded as a Christian woman at the end of your life that you'll no longer have to be a woman, you know, that men and women you know, just gender will cease to exist. And, you know, and, and I still thought we, you know, I knew we would have a physical body because I believe in a bodily resurrection. Uh, but I remember thinking like, we'll have a physical body, but gender won't be a part of it. On that note, just a kind of a side question for you guys. Um, until the resurrection, a day of a resurrection to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, so I, I know that, that both of you as Orthodox believers believe that, you know, if, if, if we died tonight, you know, that we would be with the Lord Jesus um, but there's a physical bodily resurrection that we're awaiting. 
so what about that intermediate um, period? I have some thoughts, but I'm curious, what, 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 what do you see as that intermediate period where we're present with the Lord, but we're awaiting this bodily resurrection? What, what is that like? Before and how does gender work into that? What it's, weird thoughts do you have on that? <laughs> what we, what trouble weird. will you get us into? Uh, it's so interesting that you ask that question. I don't have much in the way of thoughts. I, okay. I don't have um, a very strongly held opinion on what kind of dualism is correct. So I can't give you any ideas there. But I do think that you will still be a male when you are in the spirit with the Lord, you will have a male mm-hmm. spirit that will be okay. in some way identifiable as a male spirit in the spirit mm-hmm. realm. You'll be able to tell okay. men from women and you'll be able to tell angels from humans. I like that. That's great. You, I uh, guess man, what I would say is that the intermediate state is, is not a denial of your human nature, right? Whatever it is, like we will be reunited to our body, so we'll be fully glorified in the sense that the, the, the fullness of resurrection has been consummated, right? But um, my spirit isn't like uh, to be human is to be spirit and body. It's a spirit body composite, right? And so I'm not something other. I'm just without my body, and the fact that that existence can happen is very strange, right? Yeah. Uh, but the, the reality is, is that heaven is not going to be a rejection to the goodness of God's design or the intermediate. Right. It's not whatever it is. And, uh, and sexuality, binary sexuality is, is part of the goodness of God's design. And this mm-hmm. the idea of an androgynous spirit world is rooted in Greek mythology um, and, and, and pagan uh, paganism, right. which is almost always androgynous right right um and so if someone holds that and we've we hear that in some of our critics they even claim to be complementarian especially the female ones um that there is a real sense i think that they believe in the afterlife that we're just going to be androgynous spirits and that that is actually on the verge of rank heresy right it's yeah. like that's uh because it attacks the nature of man but more importantly the nature as you said at the beginning of this segment of 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 jesus right mm-hmm. yeah. that's right yep i so for me because of that i tend to think and i i, I don't know it's I, I i don't have a lot of strong biblical support but i just tend to think that you know because i'm not gnostic i i, I just can't even comprehend um, the existence of a human being apart from the body. It's just that body spirit connection um, is just so strong. So I, I tend to think that, uh, that we will have a physical body. It just won't be the one here from earth. This one will be waiting in a tomb. Like a and loader. We'll still have a fleshly male body for the three of us. And, and women will have spirit and a female body, just an intermediate. So not just an intermediate state where you're solely spirit, but an intermediate state with an intermediate fleshly body, because there is no human existence apart from spirit and body. And then you'll be reunited with a better body, namely your previous body, but now glorified. I don't know if that holds up theologically, but that's, that's kind of where I'm at. So, well, anyway. I'm not sure it holds up theologically either, but <laughs> I would, I would say that I, I can meet you halfway. I think that we will okay. seem to have bodies. We, God will accommodate our fleshly nature in the spiritual world by making mm-hmm. it uh, by um, essentially I, I see the spirit world as kind of like a shared dream and in a dream, you still have a body, even though it's not your, you know, it's not really your body because it's a dream. Okay. 
Maybe the nature of the angelic is weird because they're non-corporeal entities that can interact with the physical realm, right? Right. And so a lot of our problems is it comes from how we conceive of spirit a lot of times. Like so many of our theological issues is that what we have to realize is how much we've absorbed from non-Christian sources, right? And Mm. even cartoons and stuff and movies or whatever. But the spirit is like, um, it's like a white shadow that you can put your hand through. It's like, these are how people imagine or, right. you know, mm-hmm. like, and, and is that even correct? Well, we know that um, the God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body um, at all. And yet he can interact with the physical realm. So how right. this right. all sh- uh, shakes out will be an interesting experience, you know. Cool. Well, let me bring you guys back to something you said earlier, because I know some of our listeners are going to be like, well, non, non said that very non said it in a nonchalant manner. But did he say women shouldn't vote? So so let me let me bring us back there real quick and, and let me kind of frame it for a moment real quick. So, Michael gives me the stank eye. And people, and people are going to want to know. So, um, so for me, because I, I agree with you guys and, uh, and, and it's the same kind of thing. It's not just male and female roles. He assigned them, but male and female natures, he designed them. And I, I love what you said, Michael, just because it's so basic and so logical. I think it's easier for people to, to, you know, um, to grab onto, but this idea that if, if husband is head of head of wife and, and, and society is made up of of households and families, then, I mean, you just do the basic logic math and, uh, and you wind up with men being not just heads of households, but heads of society. And, and we, I think all th- three of us would agree that there's, you know, three primary spheres. I like Schaefer and I like his seven mountains and media, you know, and the marketplace and stuff, but three primary divine, divinely instituted spheres of human society, the home, the church, and the state and and a lot of the complementarian guys, it seems like they're always addressing the home and the, and the church and the home and the church and the home and the church. Um, but but I, I completely agree with you guys. I think that with the state, certainly um, certainly military and combat, I think should be men because uh, the husband lays down his life for his wife. But the, but we know it's beyond that, right? So I think that's part of the problem is like men have zero authority um, outside of just a husband with his wife. But but what's chivalry then? Chivalry is that uh, even that woman that I'm not married to, if we're on the Titanic and it's going down, women and children first, that I have this male obligation uh, that's beyond merely my household, that there's a priority to my household, uh, but there's, there's just something about being a man, even with a woman that I'm not wed to, um, that my life is expendable, that, that men can be replaced, um, and, and, and that I should die for her as Christ dies uh, for the church. And so, even, you know, with military and combat, but even with, you know, the president of the United States and things like that, I, I completely agree. I think that that's commander in chief is, is very clearly a male headship leadership role, but in terms of voting, because you, you said that, and I just, I thought it was interesting. And I, I just kind of wanted to press a little bit and hear some more thoughts. What, what, what do you think about uh, women voting? I would let Lydia vote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And could you explain why? Sure. She's the head of a household. Mm -hmm. I I think the the um, church meeting in her home. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, she appears to be a wealthy widow is how a lot of commentators think. And that's suggested what I would say with the voting issues. So these are litmus tests and um, everyone, like I had a young guy reach out to me and ask me if I was post-money or theonomic. And I said, I don't know. What do you mean by post-money or theonomic? 
right? right? And that's not me being a smart aleck. That's the fact that people grab these little, they grab these labels and throw them around. They, they have no understanding of it, right? And I was like, asked him what books he had read. He hadn't read any books. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. maybe start with three views on the millennium, right? Just like start wrapping right. your head around these topics and, you know, um, because I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. So voting is a lot like that. Suffrage is where the feminist um, movement really uh, took off in our country, you know, Um, and therefore it's like this um, untouchable thing and a litmus test on whether you're just a monster. Um, uh, Now, what I would say though, is that I, I, I don't think, uh, I probably don't think that landowners or non-landowners should be voting. <laughs> so I don't, I'm not, I'm not a big believer in universal suffrage for men or, or women, but to me, like, this is one of those things kind of like, why are we talking about this? Like, where are we at in culture? Like we going to, we going to stop women from voting. Is that what, is that what's on the, um, the agenda right now? And, yeah. uh, and so the, when people have these conversations, you have to recognize it for what it is. Uh, one, if it's hashing out among friends, that's fine. But if it's happening in a public um, uh, space, like yeah, a public forum like space, and, and I take you, obviously I take you to be a friend, but um, but it's usually us just like trying to decide who's broken the rules of orthodoxy and who's a terrible person and not actually getting work done. And that's why I personally shy away from it because I'm like, I don't care. And I don't care if you care. Um, right. But I will tell you in our church uh, to the shame of all my patriarchal listeners, like we, we do allow uh, female members to vote. Um, mm-hmm. I assume it gives are the you, two votes. Are you Baptist? <laughs> yeah. No. Right. No, that's a good point. Are no, you Baptist I'm, Presbyterian? I'm Pauline, so Presbyterian. Okay, <laughs> nice. Okay, non. What, are you Presbyterian? I am unclear. I'm unclear. More more Presbyterian in my polity, and mm-hmm. I'm Presbyterian in my covenant theology, but I am not Presbyterian in terms of baptizing infants. So that's okay. another rabbit hole that we could go down. But it's not. yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm 1689, and so I'm Reformed Baptist, but not a Calvinistic Baptist, a Reformed Baptist. So I'm confessional and Sabbatarian and covenantal in terms of a 1689 federalism. So not truly covenantal to the Presbyterian. You guys <laughs> wouldn't recognize that, but, uh, but anyways, really um, so yeah, I'm as close as you can get uh, to being truly reformed without being Presbyterian. So that being said, um, a lot of my friends, you know, most of my friends, I tend to have more in common with my Presbyterian pastor friends than the Baptist guys, because Baptist is just, you, who knows what you're going to get. It's just so broad. Um, I mean, the Southern Baptist, mm. you know, convention, and you just have no clue. But, uh, but with that, you know, a decent amount of my friends and some of my Reformed Baptist friends, they have, you know, when it comes to voting. So I'm congregational. That's one of the big differences, as you guys know, between Westminster and 1689 is uh, that, you know, the chapter on the church. We have 16 paragraphs in the 1689 all about the church. And then you got synods and councils, and it's just blank because we're Baptist. So we're going to rebel and uh, protest everything. And, and, you know, there's, we're believing local church autonomy, no ecclesiastical authority outside of the local church. Um, so that being said, you know, uh, I'm congregational and we believe the highest, uh, the highest authority, earthly authority, the highest authority is the Bible. But the question is uh, who gets to say what the Bible says. So the highest earthly authority uh, we believe is the congregation. So the congregation would have a vote um, over primary matters like our, our statement of faith um, when it comes to ordaining elders and deacons or church discipline 
uh, removing someone from the Lord's table. That would be a congregational matter. Uh, secondary and tertiary uh, matters would go to the, the elders and deacons, and we do hold to a male diaconate. Uh, we believe that deacons are not male and female, but just like elders so and men. A guy that's going to be, I'm just curious as we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So a guy that's yeah. like uh, going to be um, uh, excommunicated or removed from the table for a time, does that go to a vote? Like people get to vote whether or not he's going to be removed from yeah. the table? That's, so right. like, yeah, that's the Baptist way. Uh, 51% or what? Like, how did you arrive at the percentage? Right. Um, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, we have our bylaws, uh, but I know what you're asking. You don't care about my bylaws. You want to know like, no, no, uh, no, no. What, I, by, okay, what Bible verse you know, tells yeah. you a percentage? No, no, a simple no, majority, curious. super majority. Yeah. So for us, it is a simple majority. Um, with so elders, 49% ordaining. of the people can like be like that dude, that dude should not be communing with the Lord Jesus through the Lord's table in a Baptist church, at least theoretically. And he could right, do it. 40, yeah. Yeah. And he could keep Michael, you're such yeah. a troublemaker. Well, I'm just but, thinking about it. Doesn't that sound miserable? <laughs> it yeah. does. Yeah. Sounds intense, well, man. And, that's, and so. that's why, so think of it like this. In a nutshell, I would say that's why Baptist, local Baptist churches split is because yeah. of our polity. And that's why you Presbyterians, your denominations split because a whole don- denomination goes liberal. And the only way you can have guys who are faithful to the Bible is you get, you know, it's PC USA and then it's PCA and then it's got to be PC and then it's got to be P and split we'll P's is what they call with, it, man. You know? That's right. <laughs> so, so it's basically, you know, you have Presbyterians splitting at a denominational level and then you have Baptists kind of splitting at local. So I, either way you slice it, I think both polities have their, their, their strengths and their weaknesses. But Absolutely. anyways, all that being said, when it comes to a congregational vote, we have you know, they, they would have to be a baptized believer. And we believe, you know, we're credo Baptists. And so they would have to be baptized. Um, but that's where it gets wacky, you know, and, and, and at least say difficult for Reformed Baptists is, you know, if I'm going to baptize, for instance, a 12-year-old because they've made a credible profession of faith before the church. And it's not just on the basis of mom and dad and their testimony, but he's met with the elders and sat before them. And we're saying, yeah, we can't withhold the Lord's Supper from him any longer but we're not going to give them the Lord's Supper without uh, what we believe is the initiating oath sign, um, which is baptism. And then the renewing oath sign is to renewal of the covenant when we come together and take the Lord's Supper is the way that we would view that. So we got to baptize this guy. Now he's a baptized believer. And for me, and trying to be consistent in my polity, I don't believe in what, what I think many Baptists do believe in, which I would call partial membership, where they're, they're ministering baptism and the supper. Um, but, but they're technically a congregational church, but they're not giving him voting rights. So he's a partial member of the church, right? He can take the supper, he can get baptized, but he doesn't have. So anyway, so that being said, we would, we would see the child, the wife, right? So the female, so it's not just men and women, but it's also children. If, if we're going to baptize them all of a sudden, you know, that 12 year old could be voting to remove me as his pastor, if things go really, really bad in a member's meeting. And so all that being said, I, I, I don't know how to get away from, and, and the big one is, and maybe you guys can help me, but Galatians, I think of Galatians 3, you know, there is neither male nor female. And I know that gets taken out of context, but I feel like at, at the Lord's table, um, male and female, slave or free, you know, Jew or Greek. Um, and, and so the way I see it is like the, the one area. So that doesn't mean because we still have Ephesians 5, right? So there's neither male nor female, husband, head of the wife wife submit and everything uh, to her husband. And so we know that it doesn't just whitewash everything when Paul's, you know, writing in Galatians, but I feel like the one area where, where women have that equal voice is um, through their vote as a regenerate 
church member. And so for me, I would really have a hard time, Ecclesiastes, I would have an easier time not allowing women to vote in a presidential election than not allowing Christian women, baptized Christian women to vote in my Baptist church. Does that, does that make sense? And I think it's, I I just love to hear your thoughts. I mean, I think people's ecclesiology is, um, I think people's political understanding almost always reflects their ecclesiology. So Mm -hmm. you're not surprised that the church of England, right. Is modeled on a monarchy and America is, was at least originally largely modeled on Presbyterianism with a healthy dose of very reform leaning congregationalism. Right. Right. So you go back to what's happening in Virginia and South Carolina in the 1700s leading up to that. The the fact is the only guy that signed uh, was a Presbyterian minister, right. Witherspoon. Mm -hmm. But um, so I think, uh, I don't, I don't know how you get around it. I, I believe in representative government. And I think uh, that, uh, but I, I, then again, I allow women to, I will, we will allow women to vote in our church. And, um, and that's more of just because uh, we're working towards reform. I think mm-hmm. of it as a long line of dominoes. Just yeah, imagine yeah. Yeah, that a lot of the things people want to talk about is the domino at the very end of the line. You're and right. when they're like that, I take them not to be serious people um, because uh, because it like I want to get there, friend. We'll talk about it. But we right. there's all these things towards the front. Like we've got to get we got to flip those dominoes first to get down there. Right. And so for me, I. I that might not be a reform that happens underneath me. Someone could say that you could just do it right away. And I would say, well, yeah, but you limit the, the, the number of people you can reach. And then they would say that's pragmatism. And I'd say, ha true. It is. We're all pragmatists, right? Like, mm-hmm. let me into your life for five seconds and I'll dissect you. Right. And you can mm-hmm. dissect me and then we'll all like realize like it's very difficult to work these things out right now. Right. You know? I think the theonomy question goes the yeah. same direction. It's like, how do you work right. out the particulars of these? Is very difficult. Like, I think a twelve-year-old voting whether someone should be a pastor is asinine and insane. Um, but then, well, then again, what you do as a Baptist, a yeah, right. What you do as a Baptist is you just you don't baptize a twelve-year-old, and but it gets difficult because then you have to have some legitimate reason besides just the fact that he's twelve. Right. See, I think that's more consistent if you're a Baptist. I don't think you should baptize them if you're a Baptist until like they're 20 or something. When they truly individuated from the right. parents and they, you right. know that their faith is their own and they're not just doing it because daddy's a Christian, that would make yeah. more sense to me, I think. But yeah. okay. Don, what's your thoughts, brother? <laughs> I think the question is very simple. Democracy is the rulership of the people. So who is allowed to rule in the people? Mm. democracy the only people who should vote in a democracy are people who are qualified to rule Mm. yeah i get you i think that's good i I like the household vote i so i'm I'm theologically i'm not there but i i like it because what you kind of described earlier um michael i I see actually the the harm being on the on the the other end of the aisle other side of the aisle that if um in the in the baptist world congregational vote every you know baptized believer is a member of that church and has one vote i see it as like that guy who's a super faithful church member and him and his wife and he has six kids 
and let's say his youngest at this point, and, and it's this multi-generational still in the church. And let's say he's in his sixties, his oldest is, you know, 35 and, and his youngest is 18. And uh, well, that wouldn't work. Let's say they're still in the home. I'm ruining my analogy, but let's say they're all in the home. There's six children from 12 to 18 years old. That doesn't work, but the math, but you get the Lots point. of twins, you know, 10, yeah, 10, 10 to 18, six children, all baptized him and his wife baptized a household of eight. If it's a household vote, then, those eight regenerate church members and my Baptist framework, they get one vote. And that single woman who's 23 years old and a liberal who is getting close to being put underneath church discipline because she's, she's just, she's, her, her views are horrible and she's outspoken and being divisive. And we've already, so what you need is an electoral college. Yeah. But we'll see. And so now this 23 year old single woman is getting an equal amount of voting power. If with the household vote to my rock star lay elder, you know, for instance, and his wife and six baptized children. So that's, that's part of, you know, we all need to return to aristocracy. And the first step in that process is returning to the idea of having a free and transparent election. Until we can do that, there's not much point having any further discussion about who should be ruling free Free and transparent election. We nailed that. I thought we just nailed that. <laughs> oh, I, think that I think we got that down. Damn okay. Man. All right. I'll, I'll move us along. So um, what, what's, I'll just ask these two together and, and we'll, we'll start to wrap up and we've got a bonus question for, for our listeners who are club members. So these two questions I'll ask together, what's one of your biggest concerns for Christian men today? So men in the church, not the pagan, but, but the, the one who professes Christ. And also uh, what do you think, is one of the most severe, harmful effects of feminism on, um, on the church today. I think Michael should take that first question because he's a pastor and I'm not. Okay, great. I mean, my biggest concern is that men don't fear God. I mean, uh, I don't have any special answer that men don't fear God and that they don't uh, live a life to glorify him. And if, if I want to tie that into feminism, I would say that we live in a culture where men have been conditioned to be validated by women. Um, and those particular men will live their life to get uh, <clears throat> feminine approval. And or they'll kind of react against that. And then they'll tend to look for some sort of like guru like guy, like a, um, an expert a father figure that might not be a good father figure. So I think men that have, that haven't had good godly men as fathers, whether they're biological or men that have discipled them and mentored them in some way, those guys are very uh, vulnerable and easy to manipulate and control. So I think we live in a society uh, that is full of men that are fearful, seeking validation and easy to manipulate. And that's true of the church. And that's why, um, we can't call a spade a spade nowadays. That's why pastors have to look over their shoulder if they, they preach something because they know that in their congregation and often on their elders board or sessions that there's men that if their wife or daughter get offended, that those men are going to throw you under the bus to keep the peace at home. So now you could say that that's a concern about feminism, right? But ultimately it's a concern about fearing God. 
right? Like, like right. back off woman. <laughs> like I, I, I believe God's word. I think that what the pastor said was right. And, and sometimes that hurts our feelings that are, it's good right. that our pride is hurt. That's what that really usually right. means. Right. It is like, which feeling was hurt is a lot of times what I like to ask people, like, what, what was right. the what, categorize the feeling for me? Cause I think it's your pride. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's the the biggest problem we have right now is men that aren't masculine and the masculinity, Don and I are working on a chapter right now. That's all around this is that no, no fraternity, no masculinity. And that fraternity starts with the fatherhood of God. And if guys don't fear God um, as, as a father and see, identify themselves as a son of God, they're going to be manipulated by the ton of grifters out there. You know, I see some of these guys selling masculinity courses in the church and i'm like dude mm-hmm. you there's nothing masculine about you 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 look like a dirty worthless hipster trying to take advantage of these young men out here that are hungry these men we don't do a course we thought about it everyone does like these manhood courses we got bills to pay too we thought maybe that's the way to monetize it oh, we couldn't do it we couldn't bring ourselves to do it um mm-hmm. and so i see a lot of guys taking advantage of these men and then these men are fools to often marry brassy loud mouth, ungodly women um, who have went out there and ran around and got themselves mm-hmm. in all sorts of trouble. The very women, and I'm using words and concepts directly from Proverbs chapter seven. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And these guys are getting these terrible marriages and then we have to counsel them. Right. Mm. And, uh, and so this is, this is not a good scenario for those men, but, in, but especially for the children right? For the covenant mm-hmm. children, for the future uh, the, the, of the church. And so those are probably the issues that I, I, I see practically played out. So I'm trying to get men to fear God. I'm not trying to get them to make their wife submit more, mm-hmm. right? Like I want that, I want there to be a healthy relationship in the home. But again, the first domino to drop there is uh, a proper understanding of the nature of, of our God, who's a father, right? And mm-hmm. uh, we relate to him through the son and the spirit empowers us to live bold lives. Mm-hmm. That's good. Non, any thoughts? I think that in terms of the effect that feminism has had both on society and the church, the effect is the same for both. And that is primarily that it has kind of through conditioning and kind of through men just not wanting to fight with women, it has Mm -hmm. resulted in a way of thinking that is a default female way of thinking. Now, a female way of thinking is a great thing in the right place, but when you put it into the wrong place, it becomes essentially a a conduit for ensuring that orthodoxy is gradually undermined and any kind of heterodoxy that can be smuggled in under a certain sentiment is raised up and um, lionized. And Mm -hmm. the reason that that happens is because people who defend orthodoxy tend to be somewhat abrasive and will ruffle people's feathers because they tell them that they're wrong. Whereas heterodoxy tends to be brought in by false teachers who are by nature flatterers and they use Mm -hmm. smooth speech and women are their entire mode of existence is based around establishing social bonds. It's based around ensuring that there is kind of this conciliation between people. No one's left out 
And what that results in practically is that women aren't able to fight without splitting. There, ha there has to be ostracization going on. If there's some kind of a threat, it needs to be put out in order to protect the harmony of the whole. And that means that anyone who brings in any kind of uh, masculine, even it doesn't even have the ideas. It can just be someone who thinks that there ought to be a debate about something. If you're willing to debate something and you think that it's important to debate something, that makes you threatening and it's scary. And so you get put out and the people that are willing to toe the line and not rock the boat, they're the ones that are kind of the, the order there is preserved. And so they are raised up as being models of how to live in society. And this happens, I've seen this happen both in the church and in, in society at large. It's very difficult. We, we always walk on eggshells these days because we don't want to offend people. This is where cancel culture comes from. And this is the idea that you can, um, you, you, essentially, it's a sin to offend people now. Uh, the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice, is where this idea comes from as well. So it's all a result of feminine conditioning and not placing feminine ways of thinking underneath the rulership of masculine ways of thinking, which is how God mm. designed it. Mm. That's really good. Maybe one way to tie yeah. that back to our subject that we had earlier, take subjects like suffrage. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Because it's so inflammatory to some people, and I don't want to deal with the emails, and I don't want to deal with the argument, and I don't want to deal with the tweets and all that stuff. I, I don't want to talk about it, right, to some degree. And uh, that's not a good place to be in a society where we can't, there, there needs to be a space where people can talk about ideas and think out loud and work through them and not be punished for it. Or like us guys, we can, we can sit around in a non-recorded place and talk about whatever we want. Uh, like a, a good group of guys that know each other and we'll throw out crazy ideas. And um, I, I've got a lot of like, crazy ideas in Genesis, you know, in particular that I've, I've worked through with friends and some of them are like, no, that that's a little too wild, but at least I could, I could uh, put them out there and think mm -hmm. through it with people. When you're in an environment like that, everything gets reduced down more and more and more. And so it's mere Christianity, mere sexuality, mere everything. And even what's mm -hmm. mere is shrinking. And so I think people are in churches that can't have these conversations. And we're now at a time where it all is starting to matter in dire ways. Yeah. And they weren't allowed to have those conversations and the people aren't prepared. And they're looking at their pastors saying, why didn't you prepare me? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's like the moment we live in right now. Yeah. I completely agree. All right. Well, that's been very interesting, very helpful. Uh, I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this episode um, before we go, let me go ahead and just kind of whet the appetite for our club members and those who are not yet a club member. If you're not, please become a responder and support Right Response Ministries. If you do, you get access to the bonus portion of each of our interviews on Theology Applied. And the bonus question for uh, Michael and Non uh, that they're going to stay on and answer here in just a moment is this. Uh, what do you see as one of the clearest sins with Christian women today that pastors should be willing to address from the pulpit? So if you're not a club member, if you're not a responder, we encourage you to uh, join our team, help support us, and check out some of the bonus footage uh, with Michael and Non. The question again, what do you see as one of the clearest sins with Christian women today that pastors should be willing to address from the pulpit? So as we go ahead and conclude the episode, uh, Michael and Non, could you just let our listeners know how they could follow you, keep up with what you're doing, and be praying for you? I can be found uh, on Gab. That's kind of exclusively where I am at 
non-tenant and the non is a, has a silent b b n o n n i also have a website non.com but the main thing to look for is our website it's good to be man.com and you can find our podcasts you can find our content a fair amount of our content is on the website some of the best content we have is on there and especially at the website you can sign up for a newsletter which is probably the better the best way of getting content from us is the newsletter because it's high quality notes every Saturday and a lot of that stuff is what we create all of our other content from so you get to see it early cool awesome. yeah that's what I would say I would say go to the website it's good to be a man and sign up for the newsletter that's where a lot of the stuff that we create across multiple platforms is tabulated and made more useful I'm on Twitter for the moment at this is foster and on gab at this is foster and those are the two best places to find me Great. Thanks, guys, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Hi, this is Pastor Joel Webin with Right Response Ministries, wishing you a very Merry Christmas. This year of our Lord, 2021, God has far exceeded all of our wildest expectations. On our YouTube platform alone, we've reached this year 1.2 million views. And that's aside from all of our other social media platforms. And I've been wondering about this. Why is it that people have found our content and our ministry to be helpful? The Puritans believed that a minister of the word had not faithfully preached God's word unless his sermon was composed of at least three parts. Number one, exegesis of the text. Number two, doctrine, drawing out and emphasizing specific theology and doctrines within the text. But number three, Read any of the Puritan works from John Owen to Thomas Watson to Richard Baxter, and you will find at the end of their writings, at the end of their books, and at the end of their sermon manuscripts, application. Application. It's a text with exegesis. It's doctrines fleshed out, but then it's those truths applied to every single realm of human life and nothing less. Our nation is desperate for God's commandments, God's precepts, God's word to be applied to culture, to be applied to politics, to be applied to economics, to be applied to the marketplace, to be applied to all these things. And that's been our flagship show. As I'm sure you're aware with Right Response Ministries, the show that most of you tune in for is called Theology Applied. When I came up with that idea, I, I didn't feel like I was even coming up with an idea. I thought, I thought this, was, this was the most basic idea you could ever have. It, it feels inauthentic or deceitful to even call it an idea that makes it sound like it was innovative or it was some kind of you know, amazing creation. Theology applied, isn't that what Christians have always done? Apparently not. Not anymore. Because when we apply the word of God, to areas of human society that don't want God's word, all of a sudden there's conflict. When you start applying God's law to the medical field, when you start applying God's law to how people should vote, when you start applying God's law to Roe versus Wade, when you start applying God's law to economics, to socialism, to all these other things, then all of a sudden people are bothered. You know why people are bothered? They're bothered when the church becomes a threat. Jesus was crucified because Jesus was a threat. He was a threat to the kingdoms of this world. 
He was a threat to the wisdom of this age. He was a threat to principalities and to rulers and to governing officials. Jesus was a threat then. And if we would only preach him, if we would only preach Christ again today, he will be a threat to all his enemies once more. God is supreme. He has something to say. Will we open our mouths? Will we reflect his image? Will we reflect his truth? Will we preach the whole counsel of God? By God's grace, that's what we've done. And I believe that's why we've grown. That's why you like our ministry. That's why you've been willing to be generous and support our ministry. And so we want to continue. And we don't want to just continue in the way that we have. We want to expand and multiply our impact, our content, our reach in every single regard. But we can't do it without your help. You've been so encouraging in your comments, your emails. You've prayed for us. You've cared for us. And you've generously supported us. But if it's not too much to ask, I humbly request that you would prayerfully consider financially supporting us at the end of the year once more. And that you would pray that we would remain faithful. The last thing I want is for this ministry to grow, but for me to shrink in cowardice. I pray that God kills this ministry tomorrow if I'm going to be a man who compromises. So pray that the ministry grows, but pray for me personally. I'm asking you, pray for Joel. Pray that I would be courageous. The righteous are as bold as lions. Pray that I would not shrink back and that I would continue to apply the whole counsel of God to the whole of human life. Pray that this ministry would be a threat and that we would faithfully equip Christians all over the world to likewise be a threat, a threat to every principality, every evil power, every wisdom of this age, every lofty opinion, every ruler who sets his face against the lordship of Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas.